It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's good to see you back at Outdoor Terrors, the show where I read real people's scariest outdoor experiences. Today's episode features one of the better stories I've read in a while, about an elder's most disturbing memory. Plus, there will be a couple of hunting stories for you to enjoy too. If you like what you hear, follow and rate Outdoor Terrors on Spotify and Apple, and send us your scariest outdoor stories at darkstories.org so I can share them with the world. Now, throw a log on the fire, because the night is still young. Hunted Hunter from Ozark Hunter This is a story about what I encountered while hunting in the Ozarks of Missouri. The story takes place four years ago, during the rifle season of 2019. At the time, I was 20 years old, about to turn 21. As a birthday present, my dad decided to go hunting with me. I was pleased by this because he's always busy, and I don't get to talk with him as much as I want to. So I spent the week before opening day preparing, and I went to bed eagerly. That morning, though, I got a call from my mom. Hey, daughter. I'm using daughter to not reveal my actual name. Sorry, but your dad has just come down sick. He said he's not going to make it to the hunting trip. Naturally, I was upset by this. Even so, I got ready to go hunting after hanging up. I mean, after all, I'd spent all week preparing. It would be a waste not to go. So I got ready, grabbed my rifle, and hopped in my pickup. When I got set up in my stand, it was pitch blackout still, and I decided to close my eyes for a bit. For those non-hunters listening... You want to try to get out to your stand while it's still dark, when the deer are still hunkered down. That way you're not scaring them away. I was sitting in the stand with my eyes closed when I started to hear footsteps. I was confused by these steps. They sounded bipedal, as well as really heavy and unnatural. I've lived in the Ozarks my whole life, and my parents often joked about me acting more like a boy as a child. I was constantly in the woods getting dirty, so I felt like I had the right to call myself a knowledgeable person about these woods. This wasn't normal. Suddenly, my dad's voice rang out from the darkness. Daughter, I've come to hunt with you. Where are you? This confused me. My dad is a joking, carefree guy. He wouldn't have just called out. He's the type to sneak up on you grab you by the foot suddenly. And he knows where the deer stand is. He wouldn't be asking where I was. 
we haven't changed its location even once, because this spot never fails to provide does and bucks to shoot at. And on top of all of that, the voice was wrong. It was emotionless and monotone. It sounded more like a recording instead of actually coming from him. So I sat motionless, eyes wide open, looking around the dark forest, trying to see anything. But I had a very bad feeling I might know what it was. I've heard these stories before. Stories about wendigos and skinwalkers and other things. Things that are able to mimic people's voices, including your loved ones. My heart began to pound as I silently started to panic. I was trapped here. If I was discovered, I wouldn't be able to outrun this thing, and my rifle started to feel useless. Then, I stifled a gasp as I saw a shadowy humanoid figure appear from the dark. I couldn't make out any features, except unnaturally long arms that brushed against the ground as it took heavy steps in the dry, fallen leaves of autumn. It looked around and walked past my stand, repeating the same thing over and over. Daughter, I've come to hunt with you. Can you tell me where you are? I stayed in my tree stand long after that thing had passed. I waited until the sun came up to get back to my truck. While I walked through the forest, I felt as if I was being watched, and I kept hearing sticks and branches breaking. It felt like hours before I finally made it back to my truck. I got in and quickly started it up. I looked into the rearview mirror, and now I have a memory burned into my mind from that one look. There stood a tall, pale figure, leaning out from behind a tree, watching me leave before letting out what sounded like an angry, unnatural scream. I then let go of the steering wheel and covered my ears instinctively, before quickly grabbing it and jerking it to the right as I was about to hit a tree. My heart pounded in my chest. I drove back home where I slowly recounted the events in my mind. This hasn't changed my love for the woods and I still hunt that area to this day. I've never experienced this again, though, and my dad did end up having COVID, but pulled through. Then the two of us went hunting together, the year after. This is the first time I've shared this story, as my parents have always just laughed whenever I've discussed cryptic topics. So as I write this, I feel like I'm taking a heavy weight off my shoulders. I'll say this, no matter how well you think you know your woods or your hunting area, just know there are things out there that can make you rethink your entire thoughts about the woods you're familiar with. Sasquatch is Real From Shroomer This story was shared with me from someone else. I first heard the story about 10 years back, but the actual account happened long before its telling. I live on Vancouver Island, a small island located in the Pacific Ocean, just off mainland Canada, just a stone's throw across the border of Washington State. My longtime girlfriend of the time was First Nations, having been raised on the far west coast of Vancouver Island here in British Columbia. We decided to take a small vacation, to spend a relaxing weekend in the small coastal town of Tofino, found on the far west coast of the island. I have many stories about working, living, and the strange encounters I have experienced there, 
helping to fuel my natural curiosity towards that area. But this story has always stuck with me. At the end of this vacation, we were headed back to our home on the eastern side, and while driving through Cathedral Grove, one of the old-growth forests left on the island, my girlfriend suggested we stop into the major town of Port Alberni while passing through. She wanted to stop and see her uncle's family, who she hadn't seen in years, since they had all moved from the coastal village inland. I agreed, and after another hour worth of driving in darkness, by 8pm, we found ourselves parked just outside their humble home, just on the outskirts of the small port town. I'd never met these relatives before, but on the trip there, my girlfriend had proceeded to give me the rundown on her uncle and aunt. After much conversation, it had come to my attention that her uncle was the blood hereditary chieftain of the tiny village in which she was raised. We walked into their rustic kitchen, which could be entered from the back door of the house, to see her aunt Kathy quaintly baking cookies for our arrival. She had already removed them from the oven, placing them onto a cooling rack. She began to introduce herself while ushering us to sit down at the dinner table. After a brief introduction, we had come to discover that none of my girlfriend's cousins were at home at the time. They were away at a basketball tournament, leaving only her and Arthur there. After some talking between the two, Kathy stood up and loaded a handful of cookies onto a small plate. With an inviting smile while placing the plate into my hands, she asked if I could take the plate of cookies down the hallway to the living room, where Arthur was sitting watching TV. The two women began discussing about the local community powwow and turned their attention from me, which was my cue to exit. I clutched the circular plate of cookies and walked down the extended dark hallway that led to the large living room that could be entered from the home's front door. Nervously, I tightly gripped the plate of cookies, then proceeded to casually enter the open living space. There, in the far side of the room, sat Uncle Arthur, very silent and stoic, watching the news on the TV from his dark brown lounging chair. He possessed strong features and tired eyes on a hardened exterior, a man who had not only seen many things, but lived them as well. I came quietly into the room, sitting the plate of cookies onto the burl wood table, which lay in between his lounger chair and the couch. I proceeded to introduce myself to him. He asked if I would mind taking a seat at the end of the couch next to him, so we could speak. I agreed and sat on the couch seat directly next to the large lounger. He began to ask me many questions about myself, as well as to where we had just come from on our vacation to stop by their place. I explained we had wanted to take a small vacation on the coast of the island to see the village where my girlfriend had grown up. We then had a wonderful conversation covering many topics associated with the small village, where he had been chief for many years. Insightful discussions about raising kids, the local wildlife, the region itself, and much more. He seemed to relish the chance to share much of the small village's quiet history with me, as well as the time in which the family had resided there. Time passed quickly in enjoyment, until after a particular conversation we were having about the mountain trail which we hiked when we were at the village a few days prior. Arthur quickly went silent, as his look of enjoyment in the conversation changed suddenly into one of stoic silence, like the one he possessed when I'd first walked in. I was completely puzzled by the quick 180-degree turn in his attitude, wondering if I had said something out of line, 
something that may have offended him. He then raised the television remote up to the TV, switching it off. The sound of the crackling fire was the only sound left to be heard as we sat in silence. At this point, I was stumped as to what had occurred to cause this silent tension. He leaned forward in his chair, then rubbed his strong chin. His eyes returned to mine where he sternly asked me, Did she take you up the forest trail? The one that goes to the Red Rock. He was referring to an area close to the village, along the river, where a monstrous red stone boulder extended off the top of a small cliff face, overlooking the flowing river that the children used to play on in the hot summer months. I thought through my memories, and I was correct that we had indeed hiked that exact trail through the heavy forested terrain up to the stone in question. Arthur shook his head in a slow accepting motion as he let out a deep sigh. He paused for a moment, then leaned forward close to me. Do you plan on going there again? He boldly asked. I wasn't sure of how to answer, as I wasn't sure of the context of his questions or the tone in which the conversation had quickly flipped to. I then told him that I indeed had planned on coming back for a similar vacation, as the surfing and fishing in the area was great. Plus, the nostalgia alone for my girlfriend returning to the village with her childhood memories made the trip all worth it. He took a moment of silence before beginning to speak once more. I can tell your heart is true. You respect the earth, and that you are good to my niece. I want you to be extremely careful when going into the mountains by way of the river, especially at night. He spoke as he sat back in his chair, removing the armed forces ball cap from his head and giving the thinning hair in his scalp a jostle. At this point, I was stone silent and completely stunned toward what he had just said to me and to the idea of what could possibly follow up his last remark. It is my duty as chief to give you my blessing in returning to that trail, to walk it freely without harm and to allow you safe passage from the Seishak. If you have respect for them and their home, they will mean you no harm. I was completely hooked on his every word and found myself needing more clear answers, asking him as to what exactly a say shock was. Arthur then explained to me that in rough translation of the language, say shock meant wild man in his native tongue. He said they were a small group of humanoid creatures that stood bipedally with large feet, standing around seven to nine feet tall. They're covered from head to foot, almost entirely in hair. I personally better knew them by the name of Sasquatch. Chieftains through the history of the tribe would pass the story down, speaking about the existence of these forest protectors. They were said to be covered in a thick mat of brown or sandy-colored fur, depending on age and gender of the creature in question. It's supposed to act as camouflage against the thick forest, allowing them to pass unseen even right in front of the naked eye. They would leave tracks so large, frogs could seek shelter in rain puddles found within after the rain. Arthur sat forward in his chair, looking at me with seriousness, then asked, Do you believe in what I've told you? I didn't believe in any of it myself. 
That was when I was a kid, and my grandfather and father used to tell me the story. I accepted it as fact, because of our culture. But in the back of my mind, it did leave a questioning in myself to some capacity about its existence. That was until one October night, when I went up that same mountain trail to Red Rock, following the river to catch the migrating salmon during the autumn spawning run. He explained that on one night of spearfishing, he had taken the river trail much farther than Red Rock. The moon was full, making night fishing and following the path farther into the dark woods that much easier as he walked farther than he normally would. I followed the river until I finally stopped when the river reached a 120 degree bend, causing the speed of the water to rapidly change through the rocks to a much slower pace. I began fishing, and I fished into the night, catching enough fish for my family and the neighbors. I've always loved spearfishing, standing in the thigh-high current, watching the reflection of the large moon against the surface, feeling the cool water slowly flowing past me, reflecting on my own personal journey. He cleared his throat and went on, telling me about how, around two in the morning, he noticed an eerie hush falling across the mountains, something he had never experienced before. He said it was like the entire mountain and forest began to hold its breath, with him waist-deep in the water. Then something caught my eye, drawing my attention to the heavy woods that stood on the higher elevated plateau to my north-northwest, approximately thirty yards away. I could see some reflected eye shine, bright yellow-greenish, coming from the darkness of the grove. These eyes were staring directly at me, not moving a single muscle, after rustling the large cedar branches. Had it not been for the large moon that night, and the couple of hours given my eyes to adapt to the night, I would have never even known it was there. I stood in the river, my body colder than the water itself, as I started to steady my own breathing, lowering the fishing spear in my hands towards my waist. I continued to watch as I began to focus in on the details of the figure that stood hidden amidst the shadows. I could tell the figure was staring directly at me, with a soft greenish eye shine allowing the true focus of the creature to be known. I could feel the unnerving sensation the animal projected towards me as I stared into its eyes, until I fully lowered the fishing spear into the moving current and I lowered my entire body down into the flowing river. I stayed in that cold water, watching the figure move in my direction along the raised plateau. I could then see more of it as it came within twenty yards of me, never making a sound as it moved. I could tell it was a Seishak, just like my father and grandfather had told me about. Now it was standing only about fifteen yards away, blending into the row of large cedar trees that lined the bank of the river. The thing stood about nine to ten feet tall, and could be easily missed among the trunks of further trees with its dark and textured fur as I stared in disbelief, my entire body shaking in the moving river. Looking back on the incident, I'm sure it had been near this spot as the area was a place where bears would normally hunt for salmon during the day, 
with the slowing of the current. I remained still for what seemed to be hours in the cold river, watching the large beast constantly scan up and down the river, trying to locate my presence, all the while cautiously creeping forward. My body was shaking and becoming increasingly more cold as I was witnessing the truth in the words my forefathers spoke of. That creature just above me cemented my elders' words deeply within me in a time when I questioned my culture most. The wind began to blow a strong breeze from the tidal current that proceeded to carry my scent, causing the creature to quickly turn away from me and disappear into the darkness of the heavy tree cover. I quickly got back up, clutching my spear so tight, my hand trembling, I was sure I was close to hypothermia at that point. I took a moment even still to leave some fish on the riverbank as an offering, and I quickly hurried back towards the village. That's when the howling began. These blood-curdling screams that still haunt me to this day. They echoed through the hills from the other creatures that I'd failed to even see. I trekked as fast as I could down the river path and never went back that way ever since for any reason. I was speechless when Arthur finished speaking. I had no words for the man who wore the seriousness of the story so boldly on his face. He broke silence and continued. The say shock is out there, unseen and always watching. So be careful going out there and proceed with only love in your heart for Mother Nature. Respect the forest with its guardians and you will be granted safety. Don't take this story lightly. The Seishok is out there, watching everything. And if you're in its home, you're the same as any creature abiding to the laws of nature. Suddenly, a heavy knock frightened me as I quickly flipped my head to the doorway beside me to see my girlfriend and her auntie. Arthur, are you bothering our guest? Kathy asked with her arms crossed and a smile on her face as my girlfriend stood behind her, explaining it was time to get back on the road. Arthur answered, No, and flicked the TV back on with the remote. Standing up, I extended my hand out to shake goodbye, thanking my host for his time, for the food and the words. Arthur stood up, only to pull me in for a hug instead and patting me on the back. He spoke into my ear, which will stay with me for as long as I live. He simply said, Never forget they're out there, always watching. I thanked Aunt Kathy for the lovely visit to the couple's home, and I said goodbye. We then departed, making our way back home. Since that day, I've met countless others within the various tribal communities which are located up and down the island through many events, all of which have their fair number of locals who often share stories about the population of Sasquatch that call the island forests home. After the many years with my now fiancé, I've seen, heard, and been part of countless Sasquatch experiences, adding my own voice to the many who have had the luck, experience, or spirituality to come across one of these forest guardians 
Thanks for listening to my story, and may you all find what it is that you seek. And remember, Sasquatch is real. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hoboken Mountain, from Mountain Mike. Nestled in the uncharted depths of Tennessee's rugged mountains, my home is a realm of secrets unknown to many. Vast hills, imposing cliffs, and seemingly endless hollows stretch far beyond state borders concealing a rich tapestry of history unbeknownst to most outsiders. The story I share delves into one such concealed narrative. In this remote expanse, there exists a section of forest-blanketed mountains known to the locals as Hoboken Mountain. Yet, to the natives entrenched in the region, they refer to it as the forest that takes. This place is shrouded in mystique echoing a tale that transcends mere names and taps into a hidden history veiled beneath the shadows of ancient hills and cliffs that seem to stretch into eternity. Long ago, colonists ventured deeper into unexplored territories, their aspirations fixated on the coveted expanse, now currently known as Hoboken Mountain. Extensive surveys of the region unveiled a panorama of allure, a wealth of animals, abundant resources, and fertile grounds promising bountiful harvests. This mountainous haven not only satisfied their immediate needs, but strategically positioned, became a linchpin for further settlements. The colonists, driven by dreams of prosperity, saw in Hoboken Mountain not merely a plot of land, but a key to unlocking the untold potential of their burgeoning community. During this era, the indigenous people and the newly arrived colonists existed in a state of mutual coexistence. However, as news spread of the colonists' intentions to settle in the foothills of Hoboken Mountain, a shift in the delicate cohabitation occurred, 
the native inhabitants, rather than adopting a hostile stance, chose a path of caution and concern. Sensing an impending disturbance, they earnestly warned the newcomers to steer clear of that particular terrain, their voices carrying a wisdom rooted in a fear and superstition for the darkness that lingered in Hoboken Mountain. Unfazed by warnings and superstitions, the resolute colonists, driven by prospects, forged ahead with their settlement construction. Occasional skirmishes with native groups and sabotage, motivated by fear of the ominous consequences of trespassing on the cursed ground, failed to impede their progress. Undeterred, the settlers successfully constructed their settlement, laying the foundation for the founding of a town. Numerous tales shroud the generations during which this settlement endured, none of them positive and all lacking any corroborating evidence. The lore weaves a dense narrative of misfortune, otherworldly affliction, and mysterious disappearances. Depending on the storyteller, the consensus emerges that the settlement was ultimately abandoned, surrendered to the relentless embrace of the encroaching forest. Presently, locals caution against venturing near those woods. While not everyone heeds the warning, any seasoned hunter understands the unspoken wisdom. Avoid those woods, and if you go, do so in a group. The unwritten rule for Hoboken Mountain is clear. Never defy the rule of two. Always ensure you're in a pair or more, never fewer. In the summer of 97, I foolishly defied the cardinal rule. While the Amazon is dubbed the Green Inferno, those acquainted with the Tennessee mountains in summer would argue it's the true Green Inferno. An expansive realm of mountains and trees, once inside, the sky vanishes and orientation fades. Raised in these woods, I'd hunted them for years, familiar with the Hoboken mountain range. However, that summer marked my first solo expedition. Originally planned with three fellow hunters, unforeseen circumstances left me alone. Ignoring better judgment and swayed by a misplaced confidence, I ventured into the woods alone. Driving my truck down the dirt road leading to the Hoboken forest entry, I left it at the road's end, commencing my track. Standing at the precipice where dirt met treeline, the forest seemed to hold its breath in anticipation as I crossed the threshold into the woods. Embarking on the track to a familiar hunting spot, a location of past success, required a two-hour hike. Initially, the forest teemed with life, birds, bugs, squirrels, the vibrant symphony of nature. However, as I delved deeper, an unsettling unease settled in. Despite knowing the terrain well, I felt an unnatural disconnect with my surroundings. The cliché sensation of being watched manifested profoundly on this hike. With about 30 minutes remaining, I decided to pause, settling on a rock for a sip of coffee from my thermos. I glanced down and discovered several drops of blood on a leaf. Realization struck as I recognized the source, a cut on my arm. The scene took an eerie turn as a flock of butterflies gracefully descended, landing on the leaf and engaging in a bizarre struggle over prodding the blood droplets with their proboscis. Lost in a surreal trance, I gazed at the bizarre butterflies. A sudden snap jolted me, but as I turned, there was nothing. When I looked back, 
both the butterflies and the blood droplets had vanished. Shrugging off the ominous feeling, I pressed on with my hike, reaching the spot where we had set up a deer stand years earlier. Upon entering, I found myself overlooking a picturesque clearing, cut through by a stream flowing down from the mountain. The scene was enchanting, a perfect spot to patiently await a deer. Within an hour, a massive buck emerged into the clearing. Slowly raising my rifle and peering through the scope, I had him in my crosshairs when he abruptly jerked his head towards the tree line. Something had spooked him, and he bolted before I could take the shot. Swinging my scope towards the disturbance, I observed movement in the bushes, a pinkish blur that gradually revealed itself. What emerged was beyond horror. My heart and lungs seemed to halt in fear. In the clearing stood a naked, dirt-covered duplicate of… myself, staring directly up at me with a malevolent gaping smile of rotted, blackened teeth. Lowering my gun, I aimed to scrutinize the naked figure of myself with my own eyes, without the distance of the scope potentially distorting my observation. However, in the brief span it took for me to lower the scope and my eyes to adjust, it simply vanished. Disturbed and disoriented, I sat frozen. The forest, once filled with the lively chorus of nature, now felt oppressive and eerily silent. The unsettling encounter left me grappling my own sanity. I cautiously descended into the clearing, with rifle in hand, where the bizarre apparition had stood. The air seemed charged with an otherworldly energy. Every hair on my body stood on end, a primal fear enveloping me. I felt hunted, akin to the buck. Suddenly, a human-like guttural roar echoed from beyond the tree line. Without hesitation, I turned and sprinted. The dense forest, once familiar, now felt like an ominous labyrinth closing in on me as I covered the two-hour hike in nearly half the time. Gasping for breath, I emerged from the trees onto the dirt road, hands planted on my truck's hood as if seeking refuge in a twisted game of tag. In my peripheral vision, a massive black form shifted behind a tree in the direction I'd exited the woods. Glancing back, I saw a single hand, grotesquely human in form, clung to the bark before vanishing behind the tree. I hastily climbed into my truck, leaving a trail of dust in my wake, putting Hoboken Mountain in my rearview mirror. The encounter was unlike anything I've ever faced before or since that day. While I struggle to fully comprehend or accept what happened, I'll share this insight. The world harbors ancient mysteries even still in modern times, and in those aged corners, relics of a long-forgotten world may stir and come to life. Beware of old places with old tales, for those stories may linger on, very much alive. Thanks for stopping by our little campsite here at Outdoor Terrors. To hear your story on the show, send it to us at darkstories.org. For more scary stories from me, catch me on my other podcasts, Unexplained Encounters, and Tales from the Break Room on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to eeriecast.com for those and even more terrifying podcasts. Follow me on X or Twitter at Dark Prevails. And if you don't mind, leave a rating for Outdoor Terrors on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Till next time, 
I'll see you soon when the campfire blazes once again.